This has been a morning that's been so filled with hope, the joyous, joyous understanding of the resurrection. Uh, let me add my words of commendation for what a wonderful morning this has been from the earliest hours until now. I'm trying to get over myself today a little because I smell like bacon. <laughs> and uh, it's a... Uh, it does something to your physical faculties when you smell like bacon. I don't want to salivate during my sermon. This morning, uh, my topic is because he lives. Last Sunday, we were shocked by graphic still photographs and video images from two Coptic churches as explosive devices interrupted Palm Sunday services in the cities of Tanta and Alexandria in Egypt. The British newspaper, The Guardian, reported that ISIS claimed responsibility for the bombings that killed 47 and injured hundreds. The report said this, video from the moment the blast struck near the Margurgis Church in Tanta just before 10 a.m. on Sunday showed the sounds of a choir gathered to sing hymns celebrating the Christian Holy Day, rapidly turning to screams of anguish and panic. Egypt's state television later reported that a bomb planted under one of the pews ripped through the church. The report also said the twin attacks, time for a day of Christian worship, came following months of attacks on Egypt's Coptic minority. St. Peter and St. Paul's Church in the St. Mark's Cathedral compound in Cairo witnessed a similar attack in December 2016 in which a suicide bomber was able to enter the church killing 29 people as they worshiped there by placing a bomb under a pew. When claiming responsibility for the attack in February this year, ISIS vowed to liberate Cairo and threaten Christians across Egypt. And so our prayers for the persecuted church are well placed. And they're meaningful to those who don't have the kind of freedom we have today. Death always leaves us struggling for perspective. And it's no doubt that the ugly face of terror has made us long for the messianic age spoken of in the minor prophet Micah. Chapter 4, verse 3, he says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Against a backdrop of such mass murder in Egypt, it may be easier for us to understand how the disciples and the friends of Jesus must have felt as they recalled the helplessness and the brutality of the crucifixion. They felt they had watched the final act of the life of Jesus and the final act that ended in tragedy. And strangely enough, folks, today, for us to get a proper perspective on death, we have to turn to death but not just any death. Today is Easter Sunday, the day that we reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
And we have done that in song, and we've done it with scripture. We estimate with spiritual sensitivity the cosmic price of sin and the Father's compassionate love for his fallen, broken children. When you come to John chapter 20, we've come to a, ref a reflection on the aftermath of the cross. It's the, it's the period beyond the burial of Jesus by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And sorrow turns very quickly into wonder because we know the disciples were filled with both fear and with sorrow. John writes it in this way. Early on the first day of the week, John 20 and 1, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They did not, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from, from the dead. Amen. When we leave the disciples in John 19, the gruesome scene at the cross is over. Jesus is dead. Two secret disciples have emerged to pay what you might consider a final act of homage. It was the law that a person should be buried before the Sabbath day came. And they had received permission from Pilate to take the body of Jesus and they laid him in a tomb that Joseph had provided, probably for himself. And so the prophecy comes true that he, he would be numbered with the rich in his death. They also provided 200 pounds of spices to anoint the body of Jesus. The feast, feast of the Passover, which was still in a, which was still going on, had been marked by violence as, as an insurgent Barabbas had been released. And that Jesus, who had been declared by Pilate three times, some say four, was executed. A time of year set aside to rejoice in the triumphant departure of Israel from Egypt was marred by the cruel crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And people who should have been praising God for his mercy instead shouted for the death sentence passed upon a man who from all accounts went about doing good. It was a sad task to take the body of Jesus down from the cross, the horribly mutilated body, and to bury him, and to reflect on the tragedy that the past few days had produced. 
and how soon the disciples had forgotten Jesus' words to them in Jerusalem, very early in his ministry, Jesus said to them in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's vindication of the acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice as being able to be the only one who could take away our sins. Paul makes it clear, as he wrote in Corinthians, and I had David read it this morning, if Jesus is not risen, then our faith is in vain, and we are still in our sins. So if your brand of Christianity does not include the resurrection of Jesus Christ, let me say it's worthless. If there's no resurrection, then we have no hope beyond this life. We are creatures only mired in time. Praise God that the resurrection did occur. And we can have faith in our souls today that one day we will rise just as Jesus rose himself. His re resurrection guarantees ours. Now Mary Magdalene witnessed most of the events leading up to the death of her master. And I want to narrow my focus to just her today. She was present at the mock trial of Jesus. She very likely heard Pontius Pilate pronounce the death sentence, and she saw Jesus humiliated and beaten. She was one of the women who stood near Jesus during the crucifixion to try and comfort him and to comfort his mother. And although this is the last mention of Mary Magdalene in all of the scriptures, she was probably among the women who gathered with the apostles to wait for the promised spirit in the book of Acts chapter 2. Mary became the earliest witness to the resurrection of Jesus. We read in the scripture she came early in the morning, before daylight in fact, to add her loving respect to the Lord, to add something to the anointing of his body. But when she approached the tomb, as the scriptures record, she noticed a stone had been rolled away, the tomb was empty. She didn't pause very long. She immediately went back to the place where Peter and John were staying and told them, told them the news, and they were incredulous, of course. John outran Peter to the tomb, but stay, stayed outside, and Peter ran right into the tomb like you'd expect him to do, ever the impulsive one, and Mary's report was confirmed. Jesus was not there. The tomb was indeed empty, and the trappings of the burial were all around there, neatly folded as, one, as, as John describes it. Jesus was gone. The disciples looked around, saw nothing but evidence that a corpse had been there, and now was gone, so they left as well. But the scriptures continue with the story, and they tell us that Mary stayed to mourn. And here's how John's gospel describes it from chapter 20 and verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? 
They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is a compelling eyewitness account. It's a wonderful, personalized version of someone meeting the risen Lord. Mary went into the tomb. All she found were two angels there who had not been there when Peter and John were. She questioned them, as I've read to you this morning, as to where the body of the Lord had been taken. She didn't get her answer, but turned away from, uh, from the tomb. And when she saw someone standing there, she automatically mistook the person for the gardener. And what follows is one of the most touching scenes in all of Scripture. Blinded by her grief and her tears, Mary does not pursue... Does, does not perceive with whom she speaks. He spoke to her and asked her why she wept and who she was looking for, and she was really on a quest for information. So she said, where have you placed his body? I want to find him and care for him. I want to be a part of his burial. As a final act of, of homage. What's amazing to me is that Jesus says only one word. All he says is her name. But it cuts through the confusion of what she'd seen him suffer. It cuts through the mental pictures she must have still had about his death. It cut through the pain of that death, and it sent an arrow of inexpressible comfort directly to her soul because she'd heard that tone of voice before. She'd heard the way that her name was spoken that way previously. And nobody else spoke her name like this. Jesus very simply said, Mary. The moment that she heard his voice, even though she had been conversing with him before, the moment he spoke her name, she responded, Rabboni, meaning my master. It occurs to me this morning that we can do all of the great things we want to on Easter and we can attend the services and we can enjoy all of the trappings of this season. But meeting Jesus has to be personal. Meeting the risen Lord has got to go beyond just a simple reading of the scripture as important as that is. And let me ask you today, has Jesus spoken your name? Have you felt the power of his presence penetrate the brokenness of your life? Has there been a moment 
Or does there need to be a moment when you cry out to the one who is risen and has the power of healing and life in his very being? And it may not be something audible like you're hearing my voice this morning, but it could be just a sure knowledge that you contain in your soul that the Savior you worship is alive. See, this is the last tear for a dead Savior. Mary will never cry again because Jesus is dead. And once you meet him for yourself, you never need weep at Easter for a dead Savior. You may weep for other reasons, but you will never have to weep because Jesus is not, is not alive. We shed no tears for a dead God, for he's risen. And the power of the resurrection has to be personal for you and for me today. It has to go beyond a seasonal emphasis to a personal relationship. We've all witnessed the bitterness of death. And we need to realize today that death does not have the final word over your life and mine. Death may claim the body. If we live long enough, it will. But death does not own the soul. The breath of God gives us life. And we, may, warn, we, may, we may, may mourn and suffer the agony of separation. But Jesus arose from the tomb. He alone has mastery over death. We've not sung it this morning, an old traditional hymn that says, Death could not keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior, he tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord, and a majestic chorus follows. Up from the grave he arose. And we need as Christians to be able to stand on that personally today. The resurrection has no power and no appeal if it only acquaints us with a doctrine that is believed by Christians. It has to bring us into the presence of the living Lord and the risen Lord on a personal basis. It has to stop us cold on our roads to wherever we think we are going. And it has to challenge everything we think we are. The dead Christ has no authority any more than a dead king can command his subjects. We have to deal today with the Savior, and it's a joy to do so, who has power over life, power within life, and power over death. No other religion can claim that today. I may have related this to some of you before in another form, in one of his later moments, Benjamin Franklin, the great inventor and thinker, sat down one day and whimsically penned his own epitaph. He didn't profess to be what we would call a born-again Christian, and evangelist George Whitfield said he couldn't convert him, but he seems to have been influenced at least by Paul's teaching of the resurrection of the body. And here's what Franklin wrote. The body of B. Franklin, printer like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out, torn out, and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here, food for worms, but the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. That is our future. That's the firm ground on which we stand because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
The day will come, and Paul declares it, that mortality will put on immortality, that that which is perishable shall be clothed in the imperishable, and death shall be swallowed up in victory. That's what we celebrate this time of year. Jesus knew what the end of the story would be for him. On the same occasion when he promised he'd send the comforter, the Spirit of God, he offered these words of comfort to his, to his followers. John 14 and 19. Jesus said, in a little while, the world sees me no more. But ye see me. Because I live, you shall live also. Let me ask you that important question. Are you really living? Have you met Jesus Christ and are you living? Peter Marshall said, the resurrection never becomes a fact of experience until the risen Lord lives in the heart of the believer. Paul wrote also, if in this life only we have hope, we are of all men most miserable. The only hope I see for this world today and for every person who was ever born is for them to find Jesus Christ. For when you find him, you find life. The goal of God in sending his son to die was that every man, woman, and child come to know his divine son who has the power to save and the power to grant life. Paul told the Romans in chapter 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. There's promise in the, re the resurrection. It's what, it's what makes for such power within the Christian faith. The power of life is there. If you give me a choice, I'll take the power of life every day. Warren Webster tells of Dr. Siemens, David Siemens, who related how a Muslim came to be a Christian in Africa. And some of his friends asked him, why have you become a Christian? And Dr. Siemens answered, well, it's like this. Suppose you were going down the road and suddenly the road forked in two, two directions and you didn't know which way, way to go. And there at the fork in the road were two men, one dead and one alive. Which one would you ask which way to go? <laughs> I'm not here to start a religious war this morning. We have too many of that, of those in the world. But if I'm looking for life, if I'm looking for eternity, I'm going to follow the one who's alive and alive forevermore. The question is easy to answer for me. I'll take the road to life and I'll take the one who guides me who is alive. You see, to invite Jesus inside is to invite the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to fill you with new life today and open the glory and the potential of eternal life. Mary wept for a dead Messiah. And then she was washed with the joy of finding a living Christ. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. I'm going to invite the musicians to come back and we're going to sing that glorious hymn by the Gathers. God sent his son. They called him Jesus. I trust that the joy of the resurrection has washed over your soul in this service this morning.
trust that you've been drawn back to the scene of the cross. But it's no place to stop. Please don't live between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But go all the way to Resurrection Sunday. And then go beyond it. And live in the power of life that God gives. I'm going to get you to stand and sing this. And then as a concluding act this morning, we're going to, I'm going to come down below and we're going to pray with one of our young students who so quickly has become part of this group. But the time has come for her to go elsewhere. And she's putting her lip down the way mine feels. <laughs> And so Crystal's going to come, and a few of us are going to come and, uh, and pray with her, send her forth from this group with God's blessing on her life. Some of her friends may want to come with her, and you're most welcome to do so. And uh, Gabriella, would you come to the platform at that time and dismiss us in prayer and pray publicly for Crystal as well. And we'll stand with her in solidarity as she makes her next move in life. She has impacted us. I've been personally impacted with cake on my face and, <laughs> and embarrassing pictures. <laughs> but her stay among us has been, uh, has been truly a delight. And I know that many of you have met her and fellowshiped with her and enjoyed the kind of spirit that she, this young lady has. And it's a testimony to her character that she doesn't only come to church, but she generally brings someone with her. And so we, we certainly want to wish you well as a, as a church. You burst upon the scene pretty quickly, and you're leaving just as fast, it seems that way. But you have, uh, you've made your mark here, and we expect to see you back sometime in the future. And so we're going to sing Because He Lives and sing it with all of your heart today, will you folks? Wonderful hymn of praise.